Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Mike Berg along with uh, Wade Johnston. We are continuing our Winging It series on the life of Martin Luther. I believe this will be part 37. And um, we've taken a long break. Um, so if you have been listening while we are producing these uh, week in and week out, it's been a while. Uh, we, we don't By a want while, we mean months and months. months. And we don't, you know, we're, we're not complaining. Um, there are a lot of people who have suffered during uh, COVID-19. But it did throw us for, it, it did mess up our um, schedules a little bit. And so we're going to use that as an excuse. Well, and if some people remember back to the spring um, you got to listen into some of our classes because we were recording almost daily uh, a number of episodes for use in our classes. Three when or COVID, four a day, yeah. When COVID first forced us uh, online and just the amount of prep work, because essentially we were prepping for each other's classes too so that we could have discussion. And uh, it made it hard. When we do these Luther sessions, we really do try to um, read up on them again, not that we're not familiar with them. And so sometimes there's even... I would say often more time put into getting ready for these than for an episode. Um, and so hopefully we can get back in the, the swing of things uh, with these. But Yeah, so if you have been following along, it's been a while, and uh, we'll try to get you up to speed. If you're new to this podcast and it's like 2030 and you're listening all in a row, then there is no gap because you're just listening at your own leisure. And you are. So, you're free to jump in. Yep. Um, with today's and then stick with us. Uh, I don't know what you would recommend, Mike. You, if you want to get a sense for Luther's earlier life, feel free to jump back and start from the beginning. Sure. Um, but each of these, the hope is um, that they can also be standalones as we're taking topics or events or people from Luther's life. So if you, you hear Mike say we've done 30 some of these, uh, don't let it scare away scare you away from listening with us today. Um, as this will be a standalone as well, as we will be talking about the first diet of Speyer. Yeah. Mike, you ever been to Speyer? I have not. Uh, the uh, Mike, you've seen more of Europe, right. but, uh, but, but not, this is one place I've been you haven't then. Yeah, I think I probably... It's a nice little town. There's obviously places in, in the Netherlands, of course, but um, probably you are more extensive in Germany than I have been. Yeah, I'd say so. Germany, Netherlands, Belgium has yeah. kind of been my... Um, we're going to mention something, someone Dutch here in a little bit. So let me just give you a broad kind of where we've been. So uh, the last couple ones have been about specific people that pop up in, in the timeline. John the Steadfast, who is the uh, elector of Saxony and Luther, Luther's elector, the second one that he had. Uh, he replaced his brother, Frederick the Wise. We had spent some time with Lucas Chronic the Elder. We talked about Erasmus and the bondage of the will. We had an episode on Katerina von Bora, Thomas Munzer, Zwingli. But if you're just thinking timeline stuff, we've kind of, uh, the last time that we talked about some timeline stuff was two things. One, we had the Peasants' War. So think about that 1525. But we also had an episode where we discussed the Reformation settling in. So you lit the match of the Reformation. Now there's going to be certain things that you have to deal with administratively, right? And so we had an episode that sort of talked about that time between uh, uh, Luther returning from the Wartburg up until the Peasants' War. Now we're getting into 1526 in the summer of 1526, and now we're going we're gonna to zoom back out. So the last few 
episodes have been zooming in on specific people. The Reformation settling in, especially in Wittenberg, for instance, what do you do on Sunday mornings, right? How is Sunday morning going to look like? Who should like? get communion? Should they get both kinds? How, should the pastor wear vestments? Should there be statues? Who's, who gets to call the pastor? Is it the congregation? Is it the what town? Are we singing? It, what instrument, instrumentation are we have, should be used? Are we going to have bishops, all those kinds of things? Should you observe Christmas? Yeah. So, the, But it's very localized kind of stuff. Now we're going to zoom back out, and we're going to get the perspective of the empire. We're going to be back to a, a German event. And so we're going to talk about uh, the Diet of Spire. And in the background of this, of course, is going to be uh, the, the politics of the empire and really global politics, geopolitics here, because we're going to talk about um, the, the Turkish threat on the eastern border of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, would it be okay if I said some historical things? Or do you want to jump in right now? I'm a fan of historical okay. things. Um, let, me, let me talk about the papacy, and let me talk about the diets, and then let me talk about the em empire, uh, uh, the, the emperor and his brother um, um, in a little bit. So I always pictured you more as a papacy guy. A papacy? Like I say papacy. Augustine, you say Augustine, papacy. Augustine, and yeah. you ever hear people say the, the, the papacy? Very rarely. But I figured that would be like a mic thing. <laughs> so you're going to roll with papacy? I'm going with papacy. Okay. Um, so remember that these diets are meetings. Um, I like your explanation that these are kind of movable congresses, right? So it's what Reichstag in Germany comes from the, the building where the government meets Reichs empire tag day or tag days, plural. Um, so it, it, it movable Congress. Um, this was the, the gathering of the, Movers and shakers of the empire. So in the United States, we may say this is the 108th Congress in their session. Um, if we would, we would talk about it in the uh, imperial Holy Roman Empire terms, we would say this is um, the first diet of Spire. So just kind of 1521. And diet uh, just being coming from D, French for meeting. So uh, some that we have already mentioned, 1518, there was one in Augsburg. 1521, the most famous for us in, uh, considering Luther, was the Diet of Worms. And we, re we made a big deal about the Luther issue was just one of many things on the agenda, right? This is empire business. You had three in Nuremberg, 1522 through 1524. And then we're going to have two in Spire, 1526 and 1529. And then a big one. 1530 for Lutherans, the Diet of Augsburg, which we'll get to, and then a, a couple other ones in Regensburg uh, later that I think are important that we haven't always paid attention to as, as, as Lutherans. So the Diet of Spire in 1526, that's, that is what we're going to discuss today. Um, when it comes to the papacy, we have uh, <laughs> Leo X, just to note, this is something that Again, we don't really appreciate. We're like, well, there's one pope. There's multiple popes when when Luther is alive and active. Uh, in 1513, a Giovanni di Lorenzo de Medici, known as Leo X, uh, takes the throne. He is there until 1521, um, December of 1521. Early January 1522, you have Adrian VI, the only Dutch pope, and... And I think this may play a little bit into, uh, into the politics of the day. I believe was the tutor of Charles V. So he knew Charles V. 
um, and was maybe even intimate with him. Adrian the Sixth. Wait, only what do you mean by that, Mike? It had intimate knowledge of the personality of okay. Charles V. Uh, they were, were, were able close acquaintances. To, they were close acquaintances. Uh, January 1522 to September of 1523, so less than two years, he reigned. And then we get Clement VII, who is also uh, de' Medici, and he is going to be on the throne 1523 to 1534. He seems to be a little bit more inclined to be a f uh, uh, friendly to the king of France, rather than to uh, Charles V and the empire, right? So this is some big political things that are going to perhaps play a role in the first diet of Spire. So um, one other thing that we should mention here before we get any further, this meeting, this diet, is not going to be presided over by Charles V. He has other stuff going on but rather Charles V's brother, Archduke Ferdinand, who is a different, little bit different personality than Charles V and maybe has different priorities than Charles V at this moment, and that will play, it seems, a little Definitely bit of a Definitely a, a different geographical um, focus. So the Diet of Spire... Um, and I was, I think, I, I may have misspoken. Did I say French for D before Diet? Yeah. Okay, I meant Latin. I was going to say that. So, yeah. Um, so, summer 1526, Archduke Ferdinand is presiding over this diet of Spire. What is the first thing that comes to mind to you? Well, I think really um, the diet of Spire is going to be um, a bit of a precursor. It's going to set the stage for the later piece of Augsburg. Um, and so the diet of Spire will be very important for allowing the Lutherans to... Uh, to a degree they otherwise would not have been able to organize a, an institutional church, um, to move beyond just being a, a movement. The fact that uh, Lutheran or evangelical territories are able to undertake visitations to begin the founding of schools, um, it, it gives time to the Lutheran territories to put flesh on what an evangelical or a Lutheran church might look like, <clears throat> how it might operate. Um, and, and then that principle, cuio uh, religio, cuius regio, or am I getting it mixed up in the lip? But whoever's region, their religion, really will be what will come out of the Peace of Augsburg as well. And the, the, this first Diet of Spire will set the stage for that. So really for, um, for this to become more than just a theological movement or a confession and actually to put some brick and mortar to it, um, to have the establishment of churches of this confession. So think of later the, at, the, at Augsburg in 1530, the Augsburg Confession. We'll talk about the churches of the Augsburg Confession or our churches. This is what's going to kind of enable there to be churches, right, of this confession. Yeah, let, let maybe let's set the stage of pre-diet, 1526, Diet Aspire, and after that, Technically, the the Edict of Worms. Oh, I messed up. From the Diet. It's Cuius Regio, Aeus yeah, Religio. Regio. You the, should have corrected me. I, I was trying to remind remind myself, you know, which Aeus and Cuius, which one was which. <laughs> um, the Edict of Worms, 
So we're thinking of the Diet of Worms that we know very well. Luther was declared an outlaw, but not only that, technically anybody that harbored Luther, that was was promoting works. Luther yeah. and his works. So remember at the beginning of this episode, I talked about how the Luther, we had been doing a lot of episodes on how the the Reformation was settling in. How how what you're going to have to ask these administration quite uh, type questions, but technically there was always just a little bit of an edge there, right? You could do it maybe in this territory because you have protection, but you had to be careful because technically you were outlaws if you were doing this, right? right? At, at the very least, you were an open defiance of the emperor's will. So there's just always this thing hanging over their heads. In 1526, there is going to be a suspension of the Edict of Worms in exchange for some concessions from, from the, the so-called, what we would call now the Lutheran princes. So you're, I think that was very insightful that you had said after the Diet of Spire, this is starting to set, there, there's an institution now that is going to be, so Thank that you, when we get to 1530, you can say our churches, and that is not just some loose affiliation, but that there is there's a little bit of history behind that, right? Mm -hmm. Not like they had there's organizational structures. It's not like they had like a archbishop and all this kind of stuff, but um, there is. You didn't have to explain that, right? Right. So uh, tell me about, or you can go anywhere. Well, here you want. here's go where ahead. I would like us to go first, if it's all right, Mike. Yep. <clears throat> let's uh let's take first um kind of the Italian challenge, this alliance of um, Francis and, and the Pope and some of the, uh, keep in mind, Italy is, is, it's anachronistic to speak of Italy as a nation at this point, just as it would be anachronistic to speak of Germany um, as a nation. So these Italian kingdoms um, and Francis I of France and kind of the tacit approval of um, England, although England's not really going to be involved necessarily with many troops on the ground, um, and this desire to first push imperial troops, imperial troops being then, keep in mind, Charles V, um, his empire's troops, out of especially northern Italy, and then on the flip side, the advance of the Turks. Which one would you like to take? Want to take the Turks first on that, people? Sure, and maybe just, to, just to, so you can maybe picture this. Charles V, think Spain, um, Germany. Low countries. Low countries, also Austria. But then the, the French are the French, you have the English are the English, and then you have the Italians are under Venice, the empire, Milan, but independent the States, a little the bit. Florence. So you have, um, you have four or five, let's say four big players. You have the Pope, you have the King of France, the King of England, the Holy Roman Empire, and if you want to add the Turkish Kingdom, you have five big players. And, and if you throw all, in the other Italian states, too. If yeah. they're going to be consolidated, right? right? And lesser ones like the electors in Germany or whatever. But when it comes to geopolitics, who's going to win? Are the French and the English going to be on the side against the Habsburgs? Or are the French going to be on the sides of the Turks? That was actually a real threat, right? right? So there you were times have, that this happened. That you had European nations that did tacitly yep. align with the... And, 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 uh, so keep in mind, in the terms of the day... This was a, a European, uh, I don't want to say outright war, because it wasn't necessarily a straight-out war all the time, but it was um, a European uh, crisis um, of great scale. 
And so the and so the Charles Charles V in, in particular, who is a good churchman, I think we would argue that that he wants to do right by the by the Roman Catholic Church, is also not afraid to stand up to the Pope. Yeah, and let's not let's not, not steal to, thunder yeah. on this because I would like us to close with Michael. Um, write it down so we don't forget. But I would like us to close with we sometimes think of the past as being less. Um, filled with contradictions. Mm-hmm. And I really think it'd be good to close with Charles V, defender of the Roman Catholic Church and his empire, is going to end up with his troops sacking Rome. Yep. Um, because I think that, that puts things in perspective for us. If we maybe take the Turks first, yeah. um, it's hard to underestimate the degree to which the threat of the Turks or of Islamic conquest... We would call it an existential threat Right, today. and it is over decades and in, in a century and more. Um, the European continent, uh, together with, uh, with England, with Britain, is growing in power at this time. Um, but by the 16th century, we're kind of getting to the beginnings of the colonialism that will become so well-known in, in, in later centuries, right? Columbus now in 1492 has sailed the ocean blue. There's been, um, the Spanish and the Portuguese are going to be making their way into the to New World and, and into Africa. But uh, the Islamic world is still probably at this time, in many ways, more advanced um, than the European world. Uh Many of the things that we think of as contributing to the Renaissance um, and to the rebirth of learning in in the European West and the Christian West are going to come through the Islamic world. Philosophical texts, Aristotle and Plato are going to make their way back in. Um, Mathematics, uh, if you read accounts of the the Crusades, which happened in earlier centuries, um, those in the Islamic world will talk about how unsophisticated or uncivilized the Europeans were. And... So while we live uh, in a time where for centuries Europe was the dominant force in the world, and still today Europe is not what it was, but the EU and America, right, the, the, the West, so to speak, still has a, a lot of influence. Um, NATO is not nothing. Um, you know, you look at uh, the UN and these things that... Where are you going to do research? Where are the pharmaceutical companies? Right. Where are all these things? Exist? And so... Um, but there is a very real military threat that is that is posed, an existential threat, um, and existential for a number of reasons. A, culturally, these were a different people. B, religiously, these are a different people. Um, C, militarily, this is a serious threat, a, a very legitimate force. Keep in mind, um, they've taken Constantinople. The Byzantine Empire has, by all accounts and purposes, come to an end. Um, and... Uh, and that was a more developed, cosmopolitan, sophisticated, sophisticated empire than anything mm-hmm. in, the, in the West at the time. And uh, there's real fear about Islamic conquest. Luther will write works talking about, well, what do we do if we end up under Islamic rule? Um, what should a good Christian do? Uh, and, and this threat then will be very real, and it, it's real throughout much of Luther's life, and it works in favor of the Reformation. Um, <clears throat> as the uh, Turkish troops make their way... Um, from the east towards the west, especially with the fall um, of a number of Hungarian forces. Uh, and if you know Europe, right, you're getting pretty darn close to Germany here now. Uh, the emperor knows he's going to have to pull off 
um, a semi-miraculous win in the East to prevent um, further intrusions into his uh, kingdom and in, into Europe as a whole. And so um, we need to be cognizant of the very real threat that was. And the emperor doesn't have a lot of just <clears throat> sitting troops at his disposal. What the emperor does is he raises troops through his various right sub-rulers. Maybe in the American sense we could think of if, right, if the president needed to raise troops through the governors. Like there was no federal army, everything right. would Taxes, have to be. Taxes, troops, all that has to come through the governors, imagine. And so... He's got to convince the governors. Right. He's going to need these, these troops. Um, and money for troops and for resources for fighting wars is, is not cheap. Um, I'll throw it to you, Mike. Anything, and I can jump in wherever you want, but anything about now the threat to the European threat, um, which is uh, to the south, especially in, in northern Italy. Um, you're talking about... So we've got the, the Turks yeah. are one side, and here we've got Francis, the Pope. I know you've mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned while we were recording, but before you mentioned a specific Pope, um, things like that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I probably will, will let you do that because I don't, I don't have that. I don't have that history as well as you do down. Um, <clears throat> sure. But just maybe let me talk one thing about Ferdinand. I don't know if you want to go there, but Archduke Ferdinand, who is presiding over the Diet of Spire. And he's Archduke Ferdinand of... Austria, right. Which yeah. is, right, you think of On historically East, Austria, yeah. Hungary, yep. right, these are all very connected. Um, and of course, you know, fast forward hundreds of years, it is going to be the Habsburgs in Austria that are going to be play a part in the beginning of World War I as, as well. Um, Ferdinand is more concerned, it seems, with this threat and is more practical than Charles V. Maybe Charles V would have been, would held the line a little bit more and saying, I'm not going to give any concessions to these German princes who are leaning towards um, uh, the evangelical reformation. But Ferdinand seems to be a little bit easier to give those away. So suspension of the edict of Worms, for, for, for example, in exchange for support militarily and financially towards uh, this protecting of Europe against the Turkish invasion. The, Charles V is not, is not, let's just say, always going to get along with the French monarch, right? I mean, these are, they, they may have a similar enemy in the Turk, Turkish invasion, perhaps, the, right. depending on but how these are the, the Francis can look at it. Royal but rivalries. They're, that, they're rivalries. Right. These are enemies. These are the enemies. Um, only if they have something that could be common to them. I mean, think about, you could think about just a, a crass example. This the, is Michigan, Ohio State. Yeah, the communists of Russia um, and uh, the Western um, liberal democracies in World War II should have been diametrically opposed, but they had a common enemy. In fascism. In fascism, right? Um, so let's not pretend like uh, Francis and the Pope and Charles V and Henry VIII are all holding hands here. Right, and they want a balance of power, right? That's what everyone wants to maintain. You don't want one becoming more powerful. If we can use the football illustration, so I'll, <clears throat> I'll use this. Um, right? If you're if you're thinking of football, 
what do you, what do you want to have to a certain degree? Um, you want to have parity, right? So the NFL wants to have parity. So <clears throat> the uh, um, the teams that do poorly get a better draft pick. So also in the Big Ten, it's not necessarily good for the Big Ten that for however long now Ohio State's just been mm-hmm. ruling the Big Ten. Um, what do the other teams feel when Ohio State gets too dominant? Right? There's you want Ohio State to come down a notch. You want to have more balance. <clears throat> so also if Michigan became dominant there would be a concern. The Pope is kind of like Northwestern, right? Um, he has some army, some force, but he's not winning Big Ten titles in a military political way. Um, but he still has a vote at the table, and he's very important to the Big Ten because Northwestern, I would say with Michigan and Wisconsin, are preeminent academic school, Right in the conference, um, and the, the the intellectual and spiritual um, kind of uh, um, capital that uh, the Pope has will play in too. So the Pope doesn't want too strong of a France because that ends up like an Avignon situation where the French king brings the papacy to Avignon and brings it into captivity. But you don't want too strong of a Holy Roman Empire either, um, because that can weaken your ability to navigate between these various powers. England's a concern. But it's also an island, um, and so it's not as much of a continental um, existential right threat. Um, and so the Pope wants to be able to balance these powers. And so he will make various alliances throughout the years to play people against each other. Um, so Northwestern might vote in Michigan's favor on some Big Ten ruling or might vote on in Ohio State's favor um, in some Big Ten ruling, d- depending on right who is getting stronger out of those two. Does that make sense? Does that sound fair, Michael? Yeah, and so the Pope here, uh, was it his niece was engaged to the King of France or something like that? There, That's not important right now, but there are these kinds of alliances and moves and uh, proposed marriages and stuff are all just little chess moves on this uh, on this geopolitical board, right? So uh, Charles V, right, is going to, uh, he's going to basically fight the French on Italian stores, soil. Well, fighting the Italians, too, who just right. don't, aren't so, as much, nearly as much of a threat. So you have a disoriented Italian, you have Venice, Florence, these city-states the yep. that are going to align themselves with, in this particular situation, the King of France. And to... Differing degrees. You're going to have treachery from some um, because Italy also, think of Italy as like the, the MAC, right? What, um, <laughs> what does MAC even stand for? Middle American Conference? Yeah, Middle American. So it's got some decent teams, Central Michigan, Fire Up Chips, Western Ohio. And there'll be, you know, a Ben Roethlisberg come out of there once right. in a while. Yeah. Um, and they, uh, so they want, um, they have their own interests, but they also don't want to have one huge predominant power that comes out. And so even when they're aligned, there's still rivalries, mm-hmm. right? Um, Central Michigan and Western Michigan might want to see the MAC do well, but they also don't want to see each other, each do, other well. do all too, yep. too well. Yep, so what happens then is the Pope, uh, and you fill in the details here, the Pope is going to be on the side of the Italian states and the French monarch. So Charles V with German, often evangelical-leading troops, right. 
and Spanish troops and are are going to go with his his troops, and they are going to uh, sack Rome, right? Famously, sack Rome. And this the sack of Rome itself will take place a little bit after this, but at the time of the Dadvish Spire, the the, the the likelihood there's going to be a need for this campaign is just yeah. clear. So in 1527, I believe, is the sack of Rome. Right. And, uh, Which I highly recommend if you want a good read on this. Guicciardini, The Sack of Rome, is a great read. I used to use it in my honors class. The students um, usually enjoyed it, got a fair amount out of it that talks about this event. So And Guicciardini uh, writes it to blame all sorts of di- different Italians <laughs> for what they did wrong to let this happen, yeah. especially the Pope, uh, Clement and, and re- remember, we're talking Renaissance papacy here. I mean, there is lots of intrigue. This is There's also around the time when... Um, uh, uh, you got Copernicus uh, coming in. Why you can't have it, the prince? Machiavelli. Machiavelli. He's going to ha- be rising in influence in Florence. Like, Netflix basically Loves owes a this, lot this to, this, yeah. to this century. So uh, that, that's so hard for us to say, okay, we're studying Luther and not appreciating within this time period, you have Columbus, you have de Medici's, you have Machiavelli, you have Copernicus, you have Lucas Chronic, you have Durer, you have Michelangelo, you have all yeah. of this stuff going this on. This is, like you said, Netflix, HBO, Showtime. Right before this, you have the Borgia yeah. with Alexander VI, the Tudors in England. Uh, yeah, Henry VIII. I mean, you have, every, you, have all these fam- you have all these things that are famous in their own right. And if you watch those shows, they're so good because everyone is scheming. <laughs> yeah, yep. Right? And so Luther, in a way, is perhaps a little naive in this situation because he is not, he, he is not in that, the, 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 the back smoke-filled room, so to speak, right? Right, and Luther's going to be himself against a sack of Rome, um, but as is often the case, um, many of those with Lutheran sympathies... Um, are not going to be as nearly right. against it. It's kind of like when you're and they're also the pastor and you have a, a Lutheran grade school and that Lutheran grade school has a rival. Mm-hmm. Or you're like principal of a Lutheran high school and they have a rival and you're dead set. Like, we're going to show great sportsmanship, only good, clean cheers, everybody behaves. And then it doesn't But happen. then at the same time, when you, when you get all your people together... Yeah. Um, someone brings out the cheer about the Pope or, you know, um, and it, it can go downhill. Right. Um, so I, I, when I think about this, I think of, you have Luther who is still like, this is a theological issue. What happens politically, what happens in the secular realm, let it be God still in control. You have Charles V, who who I think is idealistic enough that wants this to happen and gets pulled into a lot of these conflicts. You have Archduke Ferdinand, who is much seems to be a little bit more practical, and then you have the Lutheran princes, so to speak, who are also practical as well, who are saying, "But we still have to give troops to the defense of Christendom." Right. They we see, an, but they see in that an opportunity for concessions. Yep. So there, and and they also see an opportunity for consolidation of the Protestant military and economically. Right. And that is going to be then eventually the Small Caldic League. We're going to talk about right. that. And this will be the beginnings towards that. And maybe to make a modern comparison, we get really mad about pork in Washington, right? And rightfully so. Um, we talked about in our last episode a little bit about you know. Um, 
that Trump kind of opposing the COVID release, relief bill. And you, you can debate why he's doing that, whatever else. We're probably differing degrees in our appreciation for Trump, but I don't think either of us um, are sporting MAGA gear. Um, but we mentioned in the last episode, we can both kind of look at that and go, yeah, I mean, he's not wrong right. that a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with COVID got crammed into that bill. Well, politics hasn't changed that much over time. And so while, while technically they're meeting at Spire because the emperor needs troops and money, the Protestant princes right. see, see a it. chance to get some of their interest crammed into the bill, so to speak, <clears throat> some Lutheran pork. Yep. Um, and so uh, this has just been the, the nature of politics since the beginning. And so in give and take, um, while they're going to give money and troops, they also see some take that can be had. We and should, in this case, good take from my perspective yeah. as a Lutheran. As you know, I've been growing in my barbecuing skills because I have a Traeger. Sm- yes. so I'm Mike likes to, stuff. to smoke a variety of meats now. So what I'm thinking is maybe we sh- I should come up with a recipe and call it Lutheran pork. Like, the, you know, it's like a Cuban pork sandwich. What would a Lutheran pork taste like? What? It's got to have sauerkraut. I would put some uh, um, sweet cabbage on it too. Something pickled. Pulled pulled pork, like a pulled pork recipe, and call it Lutheran pork. Yeah, I, I mean, really, the ultimate probably ger- Lutheran pork would be a bratwurst. But right, but what I'm saying is like... What about schnitzel? Yeah, yeah. Can you have a, a smoked schnitzel? I don't, I, don't th- I don't think that would be good. I don't think you can even do that. Let me, let me think about it and come back to you. My, my first... My first thought is a smoked shoulder that you would that you would pull apart, like. Oh, so it's gonna be a sandwich, though. I was gonna say pretzel bun if it's a sandwich. Right. So that's what I'm saying is if we could go with the pulled pork. I'm not saying I have to go with the pulled pork route. You seem kind of married to it, though, so I'll respect it. But I think you have more options there, like because you could you could make it into whatever spices and stuff like that. A pretzel bun. What? Let's think about what kind of cheese. What kind of spices if we were going to have a we 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 have no time to do it right now but we'll think right. about it not minster cheese because that was anabaptist right revolt. tom the, thomas minster um yeah let's think about that i'm a fan of huda but it's that's more dutch yeah so let's think about what would it be to be a lutheran pork since you brought up lutheran pork okay, okay. all right diet aspire um so just to wrap up then. yeah you wrap up and then i want to i want to say something we else talked too. about sack of rome we talked about islamic conquest Neither of these things have gotten as far as they will get yet, um, but they're both looming threats. Um, Charles V, who I believe a little bit before this had just been married, so he's just had his honeymoon period, um, not able to be there, so rehashing again. His brother, Archduke Ferdinand of Austria, is there instead um, at a conference that is set up um, to have, um, it's going to have to be a, there's going to be bartering. There's going to be um, give-and-take negotiation that has to take place. They're going to meet in Speyer, which is in western Germany, um, not all that far uh, in an automobile age or train age from Worms, um, at this Reichstag, the meeting of the emperor, empire. And you're going to have German Lutheran and German Catholic princes there who have already started to kind of get the wheels turning on defensive alliances. That So both of them are already thinking down the line, 
if these confessions settle in, if we have a Germany, not a nation yet, but a Germany, there's a consciousness of a German area, if we're going to have a Germany that has both Catholicism and Lutheranism, how do we protect ourselves um, and how do we manage our realms from a religious or confessional perspective? And they're all going to walk in and none of them at this point really want to have to go to war with each other. Um, but all of them want to come out feeling more stable in an unstable situation because this is the first time outside of um, Judaism that you have realms with divided confessional alliances. Mm-hmm. So they're... It's a big deal, yeah. And um, going forward, I think our next episode probably will then... Since we zoomed out on geopolitics, we're probably going to zoom back in, especially in the in the German uh, German principalities, and talk about that. This gives an opportunity for, for instance, John the Steadfast to say we're going to have visitations, right? right. We're going to. This is official. Those are hugely important. We're going to talk about catechism. We're going to talk about those things. I did want to mention though, since we are, I'm trying to say let's let's stay chronological as much as we can. Luther becomes a father. You have. Um, other members of the characters from the Reformation who are going to get married. Um, their lives, you said Charles V gets married, They're, they have personal lives that are also going forward here. And so for Luther to become a father, um, you have, uh, he's sending people out to be parish priests, um, or we may call them pastors now. I think in a previous episode you talked maybe Wittenberg is becoming the seminary for right. these for these uh, pastors that are going to be trained. And so we'll zoom back in next time, probably do a few, uh, maybe one or two on... We need to do one on schools. We need to do one on catechism. We need to do one on visitation. Visitation articles. I think this would be a good time for one on Bugenhagen too as well. And then we'll be right back into the second Diet of Spire in 1529. So we'll zoom in and zoom out, trying to stay chronological here and balancing the geopolitics that's going on with this localized reformation in, in a lot of respects. So. And so we, we get to Spire, Michael, and we have, just to sum up what's going to happen here, once again, the compromise is going to be, um, in essence, this principle, um, kind of this, this na- nascent, is that the way you say, beginning principle, mm-hmm. that will be solidified or codified at Augsburg, um, which is kind of, it's not meant to be permanent, but for the time being of, of curious regio, aeus religio, whoever's region, their religion, that is going to come out of this um, with an eye, eye, eye towards um, German princes and dukes' support for the various um, campaigns that the emperor is going to have to undertake. And so um, the princes gathered there are going to send to Charles V, in essence, a request that that will be uh, honored, curious regio, aeus religio. Um, but this is not going. To, this is not going to become permanent law, yeah. right in the realm. And the the word Protestant is going to come from, from basically the, yeah. the revocation of this. What, what was called the recess of the Diet Aspire. As they recessed, this is what they agreed on for the time being. Um, that term Protestant will come to come from Protestants' uh, objections to, in essence, the, the withdrawal protest. of. Um, the gains made through this recess. Um, but this will be the springboard for Lutheran schools being established more and more, for Bugenhagen 
going north and north and north and north and establishing the Reformation in various territories there for visitations being put into effect in parishes. One of the results of that is going to be Wittenberg and, and soon other colleges becoming seminaries to put pastors in place in these areas for these pastors in many cases being married um, for a Lutheran form of worship to be adopted in the Kirchenordnung, the church orders of these various territories. This will set that in motion um, as, as the leaders of both church and state in these evangelical territories seize the opportunity that they have. Um, anything else specific to the diet and its, its aftermath that you want to hit on, Mike? No, you want me to wrap up? Sure, I'll let you wrap up. Um, I, I like that you... You know, nothing's permanent here. Not, none of this stuff is. We're always talking about interims. We're talking about kicking it down the can. And, and what's kicking the can down the road. Kicking the can down the road. Excuse me. The, the two things going on here. You have kind of the secular realm trying to wrap their heads around this, trying to say, how can we make this work? How much should we uh, clamp down? How much should we allow? Those kinds of things from both uh, uh, what's going to become a Protestant side and a Roman Catholic side. But what is permanent right, is this message of the Reformation that is going to go out. While all this stuff is, is, talk, is, is being debated on this grand uh, stage, uh, preachers are preaching and baptizers are baptizing and uh, uh, catechists are catechizing, right? And uh, this stuff uh, largely through Bugenhagen and Luther um, and many other unnamed people are actually taking root in these different territories. And so uh, it is kind of interesting to see that uh, this is going to be permanent, even though nothing politically, politically in the secular realm, but also politically when it comes to church councils, it's just that they never even come close to saying, okay, this is what we're going to be. And uh, even through the 30 years war, you're still not going to get what, what are you going to do right. with, I mean, the Prussian Union, all these things? You're never going to quite be able to fix uh, a situation where you have a territory with multiple religions. Even in America, even yeah. in America, we have those struggles too. And so. this will come up just as a plug. Um, if you listen in to our series on why America is losing its mind, we're going to be recording, Lord willing, today, number seven on that. Cultural Christianity is slowly dying off. And if I remember, Michael, some of these themes are going to be brought up in that episode. So if you're interested in some of these notions um, and developments, I'd encourage you to, to give that one a listen because a lot of the church-state stuff that we see later develop in the West, right, this is where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and we're living in the shadow of it uh, still today, although um, obviously with it now complicated with the Enlightenment and modernity and post-modernity. Yeah, and, and just for episode... Uh we're talking the 140s here, uh, episode numbers, although I see that we need to put those episode numbers on there, but yeah. All right. Until next time, let the bird fly.
Another round, another round, another round. 